The passage of scripture that we will be studying this morning is found in the fourth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 4, and this morning we are looking at verses 8 through 21. Please give your attention to God's holy and errant word. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? I was at a movie theater recently waiting for my movie to begin, and a trailer came on for a up an upcoming movie. It was called God's Not Dead 2. I suppose probably God is still not dead is probably not a good way to phrase it, so they just put a two on the end. It's a sequel to the first one, and I didn't see the first one, and of course nobody's seen the second one yet. But as I watched the trailer, you kind of get the sense of uh, the gist of what the storyline of this upcoming movie is going to be. It's about a Christian teacher in a public school who gets in trouble for answering a student's question with a Bible verse. And it ends up getting her fired. And so it looks like from the trailer that the bulk of the movie is about the court case that results from that where her lawyer uh, goes to battle with the lawyers from the school and the ACLU over religious freedom. I'm going to refrain from trying to give any kind of critique of a movie I haven't seen yet, but... What troubled me, and I I am going to critique the trailer, because what troubled me about the trailer was how it presented Christians. 
there were several scenes of the lawyer for the Christian teacher, who I assume was a Christian as well, angrily shouting contempt at the judge and the other lawyers. There were a couple of scenes of mob, uh, mobs of Christians outside the courtroom shouting angry protests. And there were two incidences in the trailer itself of a Christian speaking in a very ominous tone and saying, we are at war. And I thought, you know, this is a Christian movie done by Christians, so it's not how the world looks at the church, it's how we, as evangelical Christians, see ourselves. And I don't like the picture it gave. It pictured us as being, first of all, shocked that we face hostility from the world, secondly, fearful of that hostility, and thirdly, very, very, very angry about it, to the point of even sounding vindictive. I think, as I reflected on this later, I think this reflects the fact that we have lived in a very privileged status in this culture, in this country. We have enjoyed extraordinary freedom to be Christians, to live out our Christianity, even to to express our Christianity. And we have had an inordinate influence on the culture around us in in the history of this country. It's a very rare situation in history. If you know anything about church history, to have the kind of safety and protection and freedom and even material prosperity that the church has enjoyed in America is extremely unusual in the history of the church. And we're losing it, bit by bit. And we're not very happy about it. We're actually not handling it very well, I don't think. And that's really what I'd like to address this morning. As we look at this passage, as we look at Paul and his portrayal of what it means to be Christians as individuals and a church in a culture that is hostile to us. You know, if your neighbor had to describe evangelicals, your unbelieving neighbor had to describe evangelicals in one word, I wouldn't be surprised if that one word was angry. That's certainly how the media portrays us. But as I said, even we ourselves encourage that image, I think, before the world. We like to be liked. We like being well thought of. We like being safe. We like being secure. We like being comfortable. We like being prosperous. And now we're feeling pretty sorry for ourselves and even bitter and resentful towards those that have taken it away from us. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible does say that we are at war. There are the forces of light. There are the forces of darkness. And it's a very real war. But as we come out of this time of ease and comfort and prosperity... We must not forget that this war is not about protecting our rights. This war is not about retaining our privileges in this world. This war is not about keeping our safety and comfort and prosperity. That's not what we're going to war about. The war we're fighting is for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the truth is on our side. And if there's anything that's clear in the New Testament, it's that we should not be surprised when we face hostility for our faith. That when we seek to advance the gospel, that there is a vicious pushback. 
The scriptures tell us to expect that. And did you notice how Paul describes himself, the apostles, and by extension, the church in the first century? Look at verse 13 again. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Oddly enough, I've never seen that as a tagline on a church sign or a church website. (laughs) But I think we should really identify with this because we've seen as we've been working our way through these first few chapters in 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth had an awful lot in common with the church in the United States of America. The church in Corinth had lost its focus upon the gospel and upon grace as the driving motivation in ministry. The church in Corinth had allowed the values and philosophies and standards of the world, of the worldly culture around it, to seep into the thinking and the attitude and the mindset of the believers. And the church in Corinth had become prideful and self-centered and self-absorbed. Remember the last verse that we looked at in the passage we looked at last week, verse 7. Paul chides them for forgetting about the gospel of grace. He says, what do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They've forgotten that their whole life was by the grace of God. That anything good they had was a gift from God that they didn't deserve at all. And so in verse 8, he describes their mindset. He speaks for them. He says, already you have what you want. Already you are rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. One commentator made a, a helpful insight to me as I was studying this this week. He said that what this reflects, and as we see it play out through the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians, is that the church in Corinth probably had an over-realized eschatology. That's kind of a, a code phrase that we that use in theological circles. But what that means is that you know, the whole history of redemption, from the fall in the Garden of Eden all the way until Christ comes again and institutes the new heavens and the new earth after Judgment Day, and everything is made perfect and pure and clean and right, that... When you have an over-realized eschatology, in other words, view of the end times or what's coming, what, what that means is that you see yourself at the wrong place on that timeline, that you, you think that you're way over here when actually you're here in the timeline of what God is doing to redeem his people and save the church. And so they, in Corinth, it seems, as we read the rest of the book, we'll see this more and more, it seems that they felt that the kingdom had already come that they were already reigning with Christ. Paul indicates that here. They already thought they were reigning in a very real sense. And you think later, even chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians, you know, like in chapters 12 through 14, where he talks a lot about their problem with their wrong view of spiritual gifts, particularly the miraculous gifts, things like speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy. They were obsessed with things that I think they interpreted as revealing that the kingdom of God had already arrived. And then you put that together with what we see in chapter 15 where he says some people were teaching that that there was no resurrection to come, that there was no bodily resurrection to hope for in the future, 
When he addresses that, why would they believe that? Well, if you put two and two together, it almost makes sense, especially when you think of the culture in which they lived. The Greek and Roman culture had a, they, that's one of the reasons the gospel had trouble in the first century, is, is Greek and Roman philosophy despised the, the human body. And they hated the idea. They despised the idea of a bodily resurrection. It was ridiculous to them. But they believed that salvation came through inner enlightenment. And so you can see how the church in Corinth, if they're starting to be affected by the philosophy and the thinking of the world around them, they start saying, well, you know what? When I was born again, when I was regenerated, when I became a Christian, that was, and as a matter of fact, Scripture and Revelation calls it a, a first resurrection. They said, well, the resurrection has already happened. This is the important resurrection. We don't have any hope in any bodily resurrection. The resurrection all happened. So you put these things together and you start to see why they thought, well, okay, the kingdom is here. We've got these miraculous spiritual gifts. We've already been resurrected. We're reigning. We've got everything we want. We're, we've arrived. And it's so ironic because back in chapter 3, we saw that, that Paul had called them spiritual infants. They were terribly spiritually immature. But they saw themselves as spiritually satisfied, rich, and reigning in this age. To me, they sound a lot like the church in Laodicea that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapter 3. For he says to them, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable poor, blind, and naked. And so with this overrealized eschatology, the church in Corinth, to me, in some ways, sounds kind of like the current health and wealth movement in the church. It's kind of an easy target, but doesn't it remind you of that, that? That we reign in this life now. We can be rich in this life now. That we can have it all right now. We've arrived. And quite honestly, I, I rarely ever say this, but when you look at a movement in a church, that movement is characterized by spiritual immaturity at best. And it's the same thing that Paul's dealing with in the church in Corinth. And so Paul is giving the Corinthian church a reality check. He wants to make it clear to him that we are not called to reign in this age. We are not called to be rich in this age. We are not called to prosper in this age materially by the standards of this age. And so he's really talking to the church and he's saying, you know, you're kind of like that shy, homely girl in high school who gets a crush on the charismatic bad boy in the class. And he's saying, he's never going to date you. He doesn't like you. You don't meet his standards. You're never going to measure up. Give it up. And the problem was the church in Corinth was trying to accommodate to the culture so that it would be more attractive to the world. Well, how should we see ourselves in this age? How do we get the right mindset and perspective so that when we face hostility, when we face rejection, when we face suffering, we don't respond with anger, bitterness, resentment, and vindictiveness? How do we get out of that mindset? How do we avoid the shock, the fear, the self-pity, and anger? Well, we need to do three things, Paul says. First of all, we need to remember our reputation in the eyes of the world, our true reputation in the eyes of the world. And Paul describes himself as the, and, his, and the apostles as leaders of the church in verse 9. He says, God has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. 
That word spectacle there in the original Greek is the word that we get theater from. But it's actually not theater in the sense we think of a movie theater, more the arena. When you think of Roman culture in the arena or the Colosseum, that's really what he's talking about. That's the visual image he's calling up here. And he's saying, we're like the condemned men. We're like those gladiators or those Christians being led into the arena, being destined for execution. That's who we are, like men sentenced to death. He says, we're a spectacle to the watching world. And it's interesting he mentions angels. We are a spectacle to men, to the world, and to angels. And what that makes me think of is Job. Because Job was one who was called by God to suffer. And his life was a spectacle to both men and to angels, as we know the book of Job. In Romans 8, and and if you ever want to read a, a, a chapter of scripture to encourage you as you live your life in this fallen world as a sinner trying to advance the gospel. You ever want one encouragement? Go directly to Romans 8. It is the most triumphant, victorious, rousing chapter in all the New Testament, I think. But right in the midst of the, 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 the high point, the crescendo of Romans 8, about talking about our great victory in Christ and how nothing can touch us, no force on earth can touch us, this is what Paul does. He quotes Psalm 44, and he says, For your sake we are being killed all day long, We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And there's that tension that we as Christians must live with, is that on the one hand, we are going to reign with Christ. Christ has already won the victory. He is coming back. The new heavens and the new earth will happen, and we are going to be with him, and every sin is going to be taken away. Every good thing we could possibly want, and far beyond that, is going to be given to us. But today... We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. And that's the tension that we live with. The more we understand that, the better we'll be able to live in this fallen world. In verse 10, Paul does an interesting thing. He, I think, uses sarcasm. Now, there's no tone. You can't hear his tone. So, I mean, sarcasm, you almost need to hear the person say it, to be sure. And actually, as I was studying this verse, I found that there are a lot of commentators who don't want to say that Paul is being sarcastic here. They want to say he's using irony. Now, you may not be real clear on the difference between irony and sarcasm. Irony is saying the opposite of what you mean. If I say it's a beautiful day outside, you know that I'm saying the opposite because it's actually raining out there and kind of a miserable day. I'm using irony. But sarcasm is saying something the opposite of what you really mean in order to make somebody else feel bad, to hurt them to put them down. That's how we tend to think of sarcasm. And so they said, well, Paul's using irony here. He's not really intending to use sarcasm because he's not meaning to hurt anybody. I disagree. I think he is using sarcasm. I think he's saying the opposite of what is blatantly true because he does want to hurt these Christians, hurt them in the sense of bring them under conviction of sin. He wants to shock them. He wants to upset them so that they'll see what they're doing. And so... He says to them, you are striving to see yourself in this age as wise and strong and honorable. But the world will always see the church the way that that the world sees Paul and the other apostles, as fools, weak, and disreputable. 
Paul says the world looks at us like we're the scum of the earth. The word scum there in the original language is that sludge that comes off the frying pan or whatever it is you're cleaning. It's that sludge that you scrub off when you're done cleaning and you throw away. He says that's what we are in the eyes of the world. In verse 11, he goes on to give a list of his lifestyle. This is the way I live as a leader in the church, Paul says. Hungry, thirsty, inadequate clothing, buffeted, which literally means beat up, homeless, doing low-level jobs to survive. You know, I'm really struck by, you know, Paul gives five lists in First and Second Corinthians. And I'm not aware that he really does this anywhere else, at least not to any ex- long extent. But there are five pretty substantial lists of Paul's sufferings, and they're all found in First and Second Corinthians. Because he keeps driving this message home to the Corinthians. This is the lifestyle that comes with advancing the gospel in this fallen world. Let me give you just one of those lists as an example from 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me for, of my anxiety for the, all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. That's the mindset of a person who's advancing the gospel. That I want to boast in Christ, and if I'm going to boast in anything about myself, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Why? Well, you get that answer over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about his thorn in the flesh that the Lord wouldn't take away from him. And he gives his answer in verse 9. But, he, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If your life is about advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ and showing that Christ is so much better than any good thing that we know in this life, if that's what your life is about, then realize that very often the way that the Lord uses you to advance the gospel is through your suffering. Because you are a much better testimony to the power and grace and the restorative power of the gospel when you're suffering when you're weak when you're struggling when you're attacked when you're being persecuted than you are when you're ascending to the top of the corporate ladder or getting straight A's in school or buying a a four car garage for your house you're a much better testimony and if your purpose is to advance the gospel it's a much better way to do it I mean I loved Amy's testimony this morning Because she understood in the midst of her great suffering that God was not only showing her a lot of things, but using her to show others how great he is. We serve and represent the one who was despised and rejected by men, according to Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
The one who said to us, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. I'm struck by how the apostles, Paul uses the apostles as the example of how the church should respond. And I'm struck by how the apostles responded to suffering and particularly persecution in the book of Acts. For instance, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are beaten by the Sanhedrin. And they are warned to not speak of this gospel again. And they respond in this way, according to Acts 5.41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced in their suffering. Amy said that in her testimony. She rejoiced and was thankful that God put her through that because of what God did in her and through her in that experience. And that's the same reason the apostles rejoiced when the enemies of the gospel caused them to suffer. They didn't rejoice in the suffering. They rejoiced in the effect of the suffering by God's grace. We must remember that the world will treat us the same way that it treated Christ as long as we are living for him and proclaiming him. Our mission is not to be liked and to be comfortable. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel. And so the suffering that we endure, especially when it comes in the form of hostility against us, is a tremendous opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And so this rejoicing and suffering enables us to do the second thing Paul calls us to do, which is to respond to persecution and suffering with grace. And that's what we're doing a very bad job of lately. We need to respond to persecution and suffering with grace. Verse 12, he says, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat, which means to respond in kindness. When the world mistreats us, it must not see anger, bitterness, and vindictiveness. Jesus said, If they hit you in one cheek, turn the other one to them. Jesus said, if they take your shirt from you, give them your jacket too. Jesus said, if they force you to go one mile, go the second mile. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the response to hostility and persecution that the Lord expects of his church. Because that's how he responded. How do we do that? How do you develop that mindset? Well, Jesus told us how to develop that mindset. Because he goes on to say, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are kings, and you will reign. And the kingdom you're going to reign over is far greater than anything this world has to offer. But not now. Not yet. Yours is the kingdom of heaven to come. Secondly, he says, great is your reward in heaven. Focus on your treasure in heaven. That's how you develop this mindset and endure any suffering because it's only for a little while in the perspective of Scripture and the perspective of the redemption that God is bringing about through Christ. And thirdly, he says, because we are carrying out the same great kingdom mission that the prophets carried out before us. Those are the reasons that Jesus says we should rejoice in our suffering and respond to suffering and mistreatment with grace and love and prayer. We're on the same great mission that God's people have always been on. Now this, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that we seek out persecution. Doesn't mean that we go out and make them mad at us. 
so that we can be persecuted, so that we can be a better witness. That's not what I'm saying. It also doesn't mean that if you're given a legitimate means of avoiding persecution, that you can't do that. Certainly you can. But what I'm saying is that when the Lord calls you to it, and when it comes, you must respond this way because this is what the gospel demands of us. We rejoice in Christ and his kingdom, not in this world. And he is the one that we seek to glorify, which brings me to the last reminder that Paul gives us. You notice in verse 14, he changes his tone. Kind of harsh in his sarcasm, trying to to really kind of shake these Corinthian Christians awake. But in verse 14, he changes his tone, and he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He speaks to them as a loving father. And he reminds them, you know, he's, ta- he's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to professing believers. He's talking to people in the church. And he says, remember that you belong to God's family. And that you're in that family by grace. And when you're in God's family, you're there unconditionally. Just as my children, no matter how disobedient they may be, they will always be my children. You are God's children, he says. And he writes them as their father, and he actually embraces a title that was unique because he says, I'm your spiritual father. He was the church planter. He was the one who brought the gospel to them. He proclaimed the gospel to them. He watched the Holy Spirit awaken their hearts. He was there witnessing their spiritual rebirth, their embrace of the gospel, and their becoming Christians. He was there for that. So he was like a spiritual father to them. Now, it made me wonder, as I looked at that verse, it made me wonder, what about Jesus saying, call no man father on earth? He says, call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Is Paul Paul contradicting Christ here? No. Because, first of all, he's using father as a metaphor, not as an ecclesiastical vocation. He's not talking about a title or a position of father here. He's using it as a metaphor to talk about this unique relationship he has with them spiritually. But also remember that Jesus, in context, when he says, call no man father, he was actually condemning the same sin among believers that Paul is condemning back in chapter 1. When Remember, Paul, in chapter 1, the Corinthians were saying, hey, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am of Peter. They were putting their earthly human leaders up on a pedestal for selfish reasons and, and dividing over it. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying not to do. He's saying, don't put earthly leaders in the place of God. Don't. Don't be divisive over your leaders. You are to serve the Lord. He is your authority. He is the one you belong to. And so Paul is condemning that view as well. But what he's doing here is he's reminding them that they are in the spiritual family of God by grace. After describing his difficult life in ministry, Paul says in verse 16, be imitators of me. Kind of odd timing to say that, isn't it? I'm thirsty all the time, I'm hungry all the time, I'm homeless, I get beat up all the time. Imitate me. He's a little more clear in chapter 11 when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He understands that that's a proper role of a leader, is to proclaim the word of Christ and to, as best possible, live out the words of Christ so that you become a visual aid to the gospel. And that's really what he's calling Timothy to. Remember, he says, Timothy, he said, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And actually, Timothy probably brought the letter to them. And he says, Timothy is another one of my spiritual sons. I led him to the Lord. And he will teach you, he will show you 
by his life what I have taught. He not only will give you my words, which I have gotten from Christ, but he will actually live it out. So you see this kind of a, a passing down, this mentoring, and how this brings the influence of a family influence upon the church. I saw an old phrase that I've seen on bumper stickers or other places. Uh, I saw it a long time ago, the first time probably. I've cringed every time I saw it. It says, God couldn't be everywhere, so he sent mothers. And it's meant to exalt mothers, but it actually demeans God greatly. Uh, what kind of a God can't be everywhere and know every? I, that's not a God I want to serve. But what's interesting is Paul is actually doing it. He's saying, I can't be everywhere, so I send you Timothy. And that's the difference with an earthly leader. And that's how you lead, is by impressing your example on others and then allowing them to exponentially increase the impact of your life on the rest of the church family. But the question we come back to in this context is, what Christians are you trying to be like? What Christians are you trying to be like? Are they like Paul? Or are they like the Corinthians? Are they like Paul as Paul is like Christ? Or are they like the Corinthians, looking for human status, human glory, human influence, human prosperity? In verses 18 to 21, Paul ends with a fatherly warning. He says, I'm coming. Am I going to come to you with a rod of discipline, or am I going to come to you with gentleness? Am I going to come to you as a stubborn people who not listen to my words, or am I going to come to you as those who have heard the word, have by the Spirit had your heart softened and are ready to repent and be forgiven? And again, it's back to that family metaphor. Proverbs and Hebrews both tell us that the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. So even if Paul has to come in discipline, it's because God loves the church. You may have wondered what movie I was sitting there in the theater waiting to watch that night that that God is Not Dead 2 came on as a trailer. I was actually waiting for the movie Risen. If you haven't seen it or didn't know, don't know anything about it, it's about uh, the Roman soldier supposedly, as it's a fictional character, a Roman soldier that was assigned by Pilate to find the body of Christ after the resurrection. It's kind of an interesting premise for a movie, and I was anxious to see it. And it's funny, it plays out like a, a, a kind of a murder mystery, kind of a, you know, whodunit, kind of a, you know, uh, you know, there's supposed to be tension in the story. There wasn't any tension in the story for me. I knew he wasn't going to find the body. <laughs> I read the book. I know how it ends. <laughs> we will reign because Christ is risen from the dead. The kingdom will come, and that is what we live for. And until we embrace that and we get out of this bad mindset of living for the, the, the approval, the acceptance, the prosperity that the world has to offer, we're going to continue to react badly when the world gets mad at us. Leonard Ravenhill is a writer who's kind of an expert on revivals in the history of the church, and this is a statement from one of his books. He says, The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. I think that's true, and I think we need to repent. And I think we need to get our focus back to think like Paul tells the Corinthian church to think, to remember how 
the world truly sees you, whether you like it or not, as the church. And then to respond with the grace of Christ that reflects so well on the gospel. And then thirdly, no matter how much you have to suffer, remember, you belong to God's family. And he loves you. Even when he has to discipline you, he loves you. And he does work all things together for good. I want to close just by reading a couple quick passages from Peter. Just know that this is not just from Paul. All the apostles taught this. And actually, Peter actually summarizes everything Paul is saying in this passage so well in his first epistle, beginning in chapter 2, verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then over in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. May we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way in which we respond to the hostility of the world, which is inevitable and increasing. May we glorify Christ in the way that we endure in our weakness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience with us. We have been living in ease and comfort. We've taken freedom for granted. We've been so distracted by the things of this world. We've been guilty so many times of seeking the the acceptance, the approval, the status, the wealth, the prosperity that the world has to offer. Father, as these things are increasingly being taken away from us, I pray that we would be drawn back to the example of Paul, the early church, most of all to the example of Christ himself, that we might more faithfully proclaim the gospel by which we are saved. We are saved by grace. All that we have, all that we are, is a gift from you, and we thank you for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.